Hey everyone, welcome back to Beyond the RX. I hope you loved the last episode. As always, your two co-hosts are Shweta and Elena. Elena, do you want to say hi? Hi everyone. Yeah, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Today we have Jonathan Edmonds, who was a former D1 athlete at Colorado State University and now currently a PA and someone that has diabetes. So Jonathan, would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you said you said it pretty well. Jonathan Edmonds uh, just graduated 2020. 21 from Red Rocks Community College. I am now a certified PA getting into the business. So Woo-hoo. Woo, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Jonathan, can you tell us a little bit about your diagnosis and adjusting to that new normal? Sure. So as you said, I was a D1 athlete at CSU track and field. I ran all four years. I was the long jump, triple jumper. Freshman year, did great. Started off, um, I made it to the NCAAs. And then I actually had a stress fracture in one of my lower vertebrae. Continuing forward, going to be stronger. Sophomore year, kept having difficulties with my ankles, sprains, strains, all that fun stuff. And so I was like, junior year is going to be amazing, right? I was working out harder, eating healthier, losing weight because I was kind of like 200 pounds when I first came in and I kind of steadily started dropping off and I dropped down to like 180 and then I kept dropping weight and I was at like 160, 150. I was like, oh, I must just be eating healthier and doing the right thing, drinking water. But at the same time, I had started having nighttime awakenings, having to go to the restroom all the time. I was always tired. I would sit some of my classes and literally fall asleep, not even trying. And that's never been me. I always remember there's, there was a Friday on Fridays. We always do stadium and you run the big Hughes stadium in Fort Collins and you do every stair. I could always finish those workouts fine. But that Friday I made it to the top and I had to sit down for about an hour and a half before I could walk back down the stairs and I had to drive myself back to the school. And that's when I knew there, there has to be something more, like something's wrong. So I, I ended up going to the, the CSU Medical Center. I sat down with, uh, I believe, a nurse practitioner that was there, told her my story, told her my symptoms, what was going on. And she was like, I don't know, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a blood test. I'm just going to check, check your blood sugars. She got a little glucometer out, finger poke, and it said, uh, hi. <laughs> Didn't even give me a number. It just said hi. And I was like, huh. That doesn't see, is that usual? <laughs> She's like, no, it typically gives us a number. I was like, that's oh, very interesting. That is very interesting. That day I was diagnosed with type one diabetes as anyone like that's an athlete that's in shape that hasn't, hasn't had any past medical history. That's kind of like a shock, right? Shock to your mm-hmm. system. What am I going to do now? Why did this happen? What's going to be my future, right? It just all hit me at once. I think I actually took it really well. I called called my godmom and she started crying. <laughs> I called my girlfriend at the time. She started crying. And in my head, I'm like, I don't, I mean, I don't think it's that bad. I think I'll be okay. <laughs> I think I, I've always been an optimist, right? I've always yeah. uh, thought, hey, at least I can deal with things. I have people behind me that will help me with things. And then in my head, I, I remember thinking, at least this happened to me and not someone else that would completely fall from it. I had I talked with a lot of people. I was started on insulin right away. Atlantis uh, for the first night I was called on at like three in the morning to make sure my blood sugar wasn't too low. And I went back in the next day and they finally got a reading. And I believe it was like 700 or like 650 or something. 
And they're like, we don't know why you weren't in the emergency room because, you know, DKA, all that fun stuff that happens sometimes when your blood sugars are too high. Um, but over the next three or four days, I steadily declined with my Lantus doses and um, got to a normal blood sugar. So from then on, I have always been a type one diabetic. <laughs> how did um how did your doctors help you through this? You mentioned how your girlfriend at the time and your mom, they were all shocked, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you were too, like being a D1 athlete and having to do all these things to stay in shape and then now having to worry about, you know, taking your insulin and like your diet. So how did your doctors and not just your doctors, just your entire healthcare team. How do they help you through this? So it was actually, it's kind of hard because in, uh, at CSU, this was before like you really, or before like Obamacare and before all these things happened where it was easier to get a primary care provider. So I actually didn't have anybody. I never, like I said, I didn't have any past medical history. So I never saw someone annually, or if I had to do a physical it was always just a sports physical with um, either the school or uh, someone I'd never met before. So I didn't have actual follow-up care for anything. Um, but when this happened, it was at, again, the CSU clinic. And it was just whoever I was able to get into, this nurse practitioner. And I actually didn't really have any follow-up with her even after the diagnosis, the, the original one. But then her referral to endocrinology at UC Health was the one that really, really got me through to having a consistent meeting every three, six months, year, whatever labs I need to do. Dr. Widom, actually, she, <laughs> I love her because she's, she's very quirky, maybe not the most personable individual, but she knows her stuff. And that's what I, that's what I have found out with endocrinologists in general. They're, they're very on top of their math and their numbers, they will get you to where you need to be. Now, they won't give you the loving hugs or the, the pat on the back, but they're going to get you there. But that's where I actually had a diabetes education. So there is nurses and there's uh, diabetes educators who were usually like they were nurses in their past time or um, just had a an indi individual in the family or knew somebody. So they kind of focused their life on it. But they're the ones that really got me where I am today. Because if you think about it, doctors, they don't have enough time. Even with my endocrinologist, she maybe had, maybe had an hour for a new patient. And that's a lot for doctors in general. Um, so she gave me what I needed for my, my medications. She uh, made sure I had my glucagon and other stuff in case of emergencies. And then I basically didn't see her for until the next follow-up. But then the diabetes educators were the ones that taught me how to appropriately inject into sub-Q, right? They taught me what to look for, scary symptom side effects of uh, hypoglycemia, hyperglycemia, any of my ketone strips. They're the ones that actually gave me the tools I needed. And that's, I think, honestly, just because, you know, time. Doctor wish she probably could have done that, but the diabetes educators are the ones that really, really did it for me takes a, an army to help one person. I'm sure. And especially being diagnosed so much later, it's kind of like you really have to change. You're changing your whole life because you have to, mm -hmm. you know, be more conscientious of something and you have to be more proactive. And I yeah. think that sometimes I know this for myself, like it's hard to be super proactive and motivated to just keep yourself healthy because you just feel like, well, I should just be healthy. <laughs> I should just <laughs> exist and be healthy. But so you talked about diabetic education. Do you think that that is 
the standard? Do you think that's the norm for most individuals and most in institutions that deal with individuals that have diabetes? Uh, unfortunately, no, I, I don't think that is. Um, even in some of the, the clinics that I've practiced in or like during my rotations, um, especially with type two diabetes, right? Cause it's more common. You see the patient, they've been kind of pre-diabetic for the while, for a while, and then boom, um, their A1C is over and they're now type one or type two diabetic. So you say, Hey, these are your options now. And so much, like so much information is thrown at them just because of the limited amount of time that we have with the patient, even if it's like a new diagnosis or something, a lot of them are just overwhelmed and don't, don't know what to do. I, like I said, I was very fortunate um, in my case to have diabetes education and people that really cared and had the time. I'm not saying that doctors don't care, but they have the time to devote for me and to educate me appropriately especially with type one, because kind of stuck, it's nothing you can change at that point. I mean, even with your type two, you can do a lot of lifestyle changes to, to guide you through and to limit how many medications you have to use. But type one, it's like, hey, insulin is going to be your best friend here on out. Costs $350 if a vial if you don't have insurance. It, if you want to pump, it's 15 grand if you don't have insurance. It's it's a lot thrown at you all at once, and it's good to have people to help you be placed in the right direction. Diabetes education, um, it's not the standard, but it should be. <laughs> right, absolutely. I see a lot of patients I, like, come in and concerned about like A1Cs. I don't think that they really understand mm -hmm. and know and know what, you know, A1C means. Or yeah. that's, I, I definitely think that that should definitely be the norm. Yeah. I don't think I fully understood what A1C was until medical school where they were like, oh, it's all it's like months of it. It's not like a one time deal. It's months okay. of how it's been managed. That's what yeah. the A1C will show you. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that's <laughs> cool. Like, again, you can't cheat your way through it. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's about education and trying to get that education in a, in a short period of time. Like we use all our medical jargon. And it took me two years to even get close to like understanding again, the tip of the iceberg for you having 10 minutes for a patient newly diagnosed, it's almost impossible. And that's, again, it, it's, it's a, it's probably a combination of that, the medical jargon and just lack of education, just people's ability to care for themselves or want to care for themselves and like how much determination, all those things, like some people just aren't built to do it themselves, to care about it automatically. If it's not happening right now, if I don't have a, a scrape on my arm where it hurts, I don't really care about it. Like it's going, it's under the level. It's something you can't really see until it already happened. And it's too bad to really get you back to the best health. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's a good term. way to put it. Yeah. I think also having diabetes probably give you a lot of insight on how to manage a chronic illness. How do you think that that insight is helping you now as a PA in treating your patients? <laughs> That's a good one. It's kind of like a double-edged sword because I'm familiar with it and I, I treat my own issues. I have a bias towards what I want to do. And a lot of times, I mean, it's not going to be verbatim from what the book teaches you or what even med school or PA school teaches you, but you know, going through it yourself, that this is what helped you out. 
right? But is that the best treatment option or is that the best thing I should be doing? It's argumentative. You're not exactly sure, right? And that's medicine. You practice and you change and you practice and you change. But I do feel like it's a great benefit because then my patients, they connect with me. I say, hey, I know exactly what you're feeling. And it's not just like a a small connection. Like I know on a day-to-day basis how chaotic this disease is. I could eat the same thing every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the same time, do a pre-bolus every time, and it's always going to be different. And that's on you, the patient, to care enough to help treat yourself. So learn enough about it to help treat yourself as well because you're not going to always have the doctor or the PA or the nurse there for you on every waking moment. Again, it's like a double-edged sword. I know things, I have experiences, I can connect better, but at the same time, I have a bias towards how I want to do it versus maybe someone's a very specific circumstance where it wouldn't be the best option. But then again, I have to take that into, into my own mindset and say, hey, let's think about it or... I'll get back to you or something like that. But I do, I do think my, my patients love it because they're like, hey, I see your pump. And I'm like, hey, yeah, we're pump buddies. <laughs> oh, this is awesome. Um, <laughs> and I can, I can help teach them those little things that maybe just made my life a little better or made it a little easier or the things, the hoops you have to jump through with insurance. Like I know how to deal with that sometimes. So it does make it a little better. You mentioned how the patient also has to care as well. It's a two-way street. How do you help those patients that are dismissive? Hmm. I do my best to be empathetical, right? And with me, it's a little easier because I'm in their shoes as well. Type two, again, is a little harder because it's not exactly the same treatment wise. And I myself wouldn't want to take six different pills and an injection every week and stuff. And that's, that's a lot of compliance, right? You have to kind of be blunt sometimes, but also understanding. If you aren't direct with some patients, they just don't believe you. Um, Yes, hypoglycemia, like having uh, insulin and going hypoglycemic, it's not fun at that point in time, but you're at least at a lower threshold and you know your blood sugars are kind of being more controlled in that, that hundred range, right? Sometimes you'll have some hypoglycemia, but people will, and even myself, I'd rather be 200 plus if I'm not hypoglycemic, because you don't feel that as much and your body acclimates to it. So you're just used to it. And then if you maintain that for a long time, that's when you get those small vessel changes, the diabetic retinopathy, the polyneuropathy in your feet, like bladder issues, you get all those problems. And then again, once it's nerves, it's very hard to change. And we have little medicine, little understanding of how to change it, right? (laughs) When you talk to a patient, it's important to be direct. It's important to educate and give them an opportunity for questions and more time because sometimes it takes that long. Sometimes it will take 10 visits until they actually accept that they're diabetic or um, that they have a chronic issue. I mean, I know even me with all my optimism and all my understanding of, hey, I have to change and do this. At one point in college, I was like, are you sure I'm diabetic? (laughs) And 
I, I literally did. I stopped using insulin for about half a day. And then I checked my blood sugar and I was like, all right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hypothesis confirmed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need insulin. <laughs> I am diabetic. <laughs> that so is so even, funny. Yeah. Even with all that understanding, I even second guess myself, you know? Yeah. And I can, I can connect with patients that way. Like I, I get it. It's not great, but what do you want in your life? What do you yeah. want going forward? I'm not going to get docked for giving you the education and you turning it down or for giving you the medication and you turning it down. But I want you to be able to live your life to the fullest without having an issue that can be treated nowadays. You know, like, mm-hmm. How many years ago were we still using uh, bovine insulin, right? Or porcine insulin? We've come so far. <laughs> in such a short time. In such a short Like they're even talking about uh, artificial pancreas um, to control everything. And right now with um, the continuous glucose monitors and they have like closed loop technology, mm-hmm. when you go to bed, if you're high at like 250, the pump brings you back down to a good spot. It's becoming much easier but people are still kind of defiant because that's just human nature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And expenses, for sure. right? um, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's every patient is, is a individual treat them as accordingly. But as I said, you have to be direct. You have to tell them the stuff they need and try to be friendly at the same time. They're not just a number. They're a person. Um, and that's, that's important to keep in mind as well. Yeah, for sure. I feel like, if I was diabetic and I was talking to someone that was just diagnosed with diabetes, I would get stressed just wanting them to grasp this understanding. So kind of tying into that, do you want to do anything related to diabetes as a physician's assistant? Yeah. So that was actually uh, one of my first thoughts was I'm going into endocrinology. I'm going to be a, I'm just going to specialize in type one diabetics. I want my life to be that, but (laughs) As we love to do that, there's not very many jobs that just will let you do that, right? Mm-hmm. So with with diabetes, there's a lots of endocrine issues and such. So you'd have to deal with that as well, which I love. It's very complicated, um, very small changes, minute changes, sometimes surgeries, very cool stuff. But then as I went through my other rotations, family medicine, OBGYN, like you deal with diabetics no matter what you're doing. It's, it's a very common issue. And no matter what field, you're always going to have that. And that's kind of why I love family medicine in general is because you, you get a dip your finger in each kind of, <laughs> mm-hmm. each kind of area and always kind of humble yourself about what you know, because there's always newer stuff and um, you learn from the different specialists. You're doing a lot of referrals. You're doing, you're coming back with a lot of information. It's a lot of lot of time and you see a lot of patients, but it, it helps me kind of get the things that I wanted to see and also care about, um, diabetic patients Mm -hmm. and other patients that I wouldn't get to see if I just specialize in the chronology. It definitely did cross my mind still out there. I still might specialize eventually, but just getting out of school, I kind of still want to do my due diligence and go into family med and rural community right. and yeah. do my job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, isn't there a shortage of healthcare providers? Oh, yeah. A shortage. Yeah. So yeah. one, one cool uh, thing I've heard is U.S. 
We love our specialties, right? You specialize, you're super good at that. And family medicine loves to send you a referral, but we do need more general practitioners do the smaller things manage until you feel uncomfortable or until you get to the point of being uncomfortable and then refer out. And if more people did that, then our medical system wouldn't be so bogged down. Emergency medicine wouldn't see so many silly things like sinusitis that doesn't need any help and they just send them away or the person sits in the ER for eight hours, just taking up space. And it's like, we, we need to have those general practitioners that have a good understanding on most things and feel comfortable on most things. And then we, when we need to reach out and have specialists. Uh, what I was going to say though, is there's other countries that have the complete opposite problem. Everyone wants to be a general practitioner and nobody wants to be a specialist. So, <laughs> America, right? Uh, <laughs> we always have kind of the opposite problem of other folks, but. Yeah. <laughs> happens, happens. <laughs> it, it's cool. And I, I'm glad I at least I want to be in the trenches for a little bit. I want, yeah. <laughs> I want to have that that kind of fun for a while, yeah. while I have energy still. <laughs> yeah. But even not docking on specialties because they see a ton of patients as well. We need them a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. That's it's also true. more expensive too. It's like more expensive yep. for copay and everything else. Like mm-hmm. it's insane how expensive medicine is in the U.S. And I think there are ways to combat that, to decrease the expense. And one of which is definitely having, you know, a family medicine, um, a general practitioner that you can feel free to go to for any of these things before you have to go see your specialist. Exactly. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Jonathan, so you were a D1 athlete and I was a college athlete. I was not a runner or did anything related to drug. I was a dancer, so I avoided anything other than, you know, dance. Um, but I know that being an athlete, like you have a lot of lifting and I mean, practices all the time, doing things that aren't required of other people. So how did being diagnosed with diabetes just change your, your athletic career if it did at all, and also change the relationship with your teammates? Because I know I had chronic pain throughout college and whatnot. And I didn't tell any of my teammates because I didn't want any stigma or any, you know, differences or assumptions made about me. So how did that kind of just change your athletic career? Oh, yeah, really good one. So, I mean, the track team is a big team, right? I knew most people, but I wasn't best friends with every single person on the team. I wish I was. I wish I, <laughs> I could do that, but it's just not enough time. But I actually lived with two of my teammates from freshman through senior year, and they were actually the first ones that I told or I guess the fourth ones. So um, <laughs> girlfriend, roommates. Yeah. Um, and one of my roommates was just, he kind of was flabbergasted because we, uh, we always had an inside joke about, <laughs> about running and how <laughs> when we were running the 400 for workouts, we would say, oh man, I guess the blood sugar is kicking in. <laughs> Ooh. Or, Yikes. oh man, I guess the... <laughs> I guess his sugar is not doing too hot. Like just a joke for some reason. I don't even know why. It wasn't <laughs> even a connection. Um, and then just the irony, the irony of it. Was, oh, they were also my biggest kind of supporters too. They were actually the first ones to give me my injections. I trusted them that much. So Aww. the first night I came home and we had to do the Lantis, I had each of them do <laughs> the five units in each side. <laughs> each side of love handles. I was like, each each person gets a chance. We're gonna do this together as a team. 
Um, no one's left out. <laughs> yeah, so they they were there with me a hundred percent. They uh, they always were. They always cared. They always wanted to make sure that um, I had snacks or uh, my blood sugar was good before before events or competitions. And then, but going on to the other teammates, I made it known that I was diabetic just because you know you want people to know where the glucagon kit is or if. If I were to go low, like what to do or the situation, I mean, everyone it reacts a little differently. They're like, oh, I can never do that. Or I can, I can never do this or that. So it kind of, kind of messes with your psyche a little bit. You always want to be strong and always want to be the competitor. But at the same time, I had to realize that I can't do everything myself in those situations. So I had to look back on that a little bit, like even I had all the lifting records, like the strength weight uh, lifting record at CSU. I was, um, I had the triple jump record for a little while. Actually, I, I think a, a kid beat it last year. So that was awesome to see, but I had it for a little bit. So that's still awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah. I was actually the Merrill Jean or athletic scholar athlete at CSU. Oh, um, well, wow. look at yeah, you. I felt, Go. Like I, still, I still accomplished what I wanted to. And yeah. I, that's just the competitor in you, but you always have to realize that <laughs> you're not, you're not Superman, right? You need, you need others and they were supportive and everyone knew, but it just made me feel human in my, in my youth, you know, kids always feel <laughs> like Superman again. We're always mm-hmm. running around, never going to get hurt, never going to have any issues and boom, I went diabetic. I have issues now. I have to be a little <laughs> focused. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I I would check my blood sugars before events. I would make sure that I was in a decent range. Some again, like I said, diabetes is chaotic. Uh, I'd be in 250s somehow, 300s somehow. I didn't really eat anything. I don't know why it's this high, but stress, cortisol, mm-hmm. all that stuff's messing with you. I'd get tired running down the runway when I was that high. And I'm only running 150 feet at most, right? <laughs> That's not great. <laughs> so you, you, it was a fine tuning. And no matter mm-hmm. what I did fine tuning wise, there's always adjustments. Mm-hmm. And so I just had to get used to that lifestyle. And I think being an athlete prepared me more because I was always on top of things. I get home, I do my homework. I go to practice. I do the rest of my homework. I'd sleep, I'd work out. It's a, it's a schedule and you have to get things done. If you don't, that's on you. And that's, that's going to get you in trouble. Just adding the extra little adjustments with my medication and such added more to my plate, but it still was just another adjustment I had to do or something Mm -hmm. else I had to accomplish. So it wasn't too bad, but diet, diet really got me though. Cause I was a kid that never tried to hide what he was eating. (laughs) I would, I would have a whole bag of family sized Doritos in one city and be very comfortable or in college, right? Ramen. That is a big thing. And that's not, there's no joke. I would eat two packets for a meal and would be still hungry. You look at the serving size. One packet is actually two servings and it's about 50, 80 carbs a serving. It's kind of ridiculous. I don't remember ramen off the top of my head. But that's Dang. another thing that you just get used to counting, yeah. counting, counting, mm-hmm. uh, a slice of bread. What, what's your guess on how many carbs is in just one slice? 
What if I guessed it perfectly? I like would it's be very <laughs> impressed. You probably will. It's not that. I mean, it's, I don't know. It, it blew my mind. I know that. 17. Just one slice of bread. 17? Yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> so it can range though. So it's kind of a trick question. So it's like 15 to some breads are like 22, 25. That's just one slice. If you make a sandwich, that's two slices, right? Oh my so God. you have to figure that in. And then if you add protein, if you add fat, like cheese, if you add something else, that's going to prolong how long your blood sugar spikes. There's, there's all these little nuances and everyone's a little different. So like I may mm-hmm. react a little different than, than you, but then you, you figure that in. So then it just all be, and then you add some, wait, chocolate milk or some protein drink after your, your strength and conditioning. What's going to happen now? Oh no. <laughs> or one oh, thing gosh. I is uh, cardio versus heavy lifting. <laughs> cardio, if you go long enough, you're going to drop pretty quick. Your blood sugars are going to drop. Now lifting, they'll drop, but then they'll spike because your, your body secretes a a ton of the sugars to try to rebuild right afterwards. So mm-hmm. you just spike like crazy right afterwards. So these, again, the little nuances, the little steps you have to do to fine tune, I'm still struggling with it. I still don't quite understand all the details or I think I have it. And then it changes one day, but there's always mm-hmm. a baseline and then adjustments. And in the end, you just, you're just dealing with it. You're kind of doing your own medicine as, as a type one diabetic or even type two diabetic, because you still check your sugars, right. Or what you're doing. Yeah. You'll have to. Oh, wow. Things. wow. I definitely, I think I had a misconception of what it means to be a diabetic. I always thought it was you eat, you t- or you check your blood sugar, then you eat then you check it again and then insulin. But it's like, you're having this running total trying to keep track of everything. I feel like that's so mentally exhausting. Don't you ever just feel like, dang, I want to break. <laughs> Yeah. And I, and that's, again, like I try to, I try to look at others that have dealt with diabetes for 60, 70 years. Like you're still living and you can still be a hundred years old if you, if you make it that far. Right. Mm-hmm. Like other genes take into account after like during that time, if you're lasting that long, but I mean, that's why people do, uh, do like pump holidays. Like if you have an insulin pump, sometimes they'll do a holiday where you don't use your pump. You just switch back to either pens or insulin injections and you just get rid of the, the extra thing that's attached to you. Cause then it gives you a little more freedom for a little bit. You're still controlling yourself, but you're not just connected. Um, and it's just those little brain breaks, you know, sometimes, I mean, I, I don't, I still don't change my diet very much. And that's one misconception that I've always had an issue with. People will be like, oh, why are you eating sweets? Or why are you uh, having cake? And it's like, well, yes, if I'm type two diabetic, I'm trying to lose weight and I'm not really compliant with my medications and this and that, and this is my biggest issue is my weight, then I probably shouldn't be eating these things. You're correct. But type one is a little different where you, you're still living your life. You just need to balance what you're intaking carb wise with your insulin. Um, so I'm, I'm still going to have my cake and ice cream. I'm going to do my carb count. 
I'm going to do, make sure my insulin's there and I'm going to work out the next day, just like a regular person, right? I'm going to make sure that, <laughs> that I'm balancing my calories and on what I'm intaking, but it's not all about one thing or one aspect. So I know newly, newly diagnosed, that was one of my biggest pet peeves. I'm like, I can eat whatever I want. I just have to balance it. <laughs> um, and that's one thing that like general public just they don't quite understand and i love to educate people too about it but it again you have to balance it you're not just going to eat cake all day don't be a silly person <laughs> have <your> vegetables <laughs> have fruit still have a well-balanced diet but you don't have to completely kick everything unless you're that person where it's completely uncontrolled and your blood sugars never go down, then you might have to be a little more strict with things. How long did it take you to go from those crazy high numbers, like the 650, 700 to something that's more like manageable and like something that you maintained? Pretty quick. Um, like I, I think it was, again, we did the insulin at initially the first day, the Lantus brings you down a little slower, make sure nothing's going crazy, check in the next day. And then I was in like the 600s. And I think by day like three, I was maintaining 80 to like 150. And I'm still, I'm, I'm still pretty insulin sensitive. So it doesn't take much to control it. On a regular day, I'll still hit 200, 250 occasionally. But that's just deals with you, how, how you pre bolist or if you did it with enough time to catch that blood sugar spike, if you more stressed in the day or this and that. And there's those instances where I still have a mess up and go to 350, 400 and you have to do the corrections and it's not fun, but I mean, you can't be a hundred percent perfect. And <laughs> being a, being a very, uh, uh, type a, yeah, type A, like lots of medical people, type A personality. It's very hard for me not to be 100% <laughs> and it kills me. But you, that's another thing is uh, you have to just come to terms with that. <laughs> like I have to be good as much as I can. But when it goes bad, it's still okay. I love that. <laughs> I think that's important for people to understand, right? Like with any chronic disease, it's not a one-time thing. It's like chronic. So that, that means it's every day. And I know that we see the word and we're like, oh, chronic means every day, but you don't really understand the whole degree to how real that is until you have the chronic disease. Like my sister has a chronic disease. And so I see it every day through her and I see her, she has ulcerative colitis. So hers is also a mm. diet problem. It's a GI thing. And so yeah. for, and she loves to eat. And so she was <laughs> like, I got the worst disease. I have to watch how I eat. I love food. She will literally be like, I'm the least pickiest. I will eat anything that's edible. And then to like bring it all the way down yeah. and free and all this stuff. Oh. And so, and then she, and then like when she first got diagnosed, she was like, oh, it's okay. I'll just do this for a month or two months. And then once my colon is okay, I'll go back to eating the way I want to. And then when she got that like wake up call of like, oh, this is going to be for the rest of my life. Like <laughs> I didn't it, it sign up for like this. That. It's very like that. It's that wake up call. My, my little, I'm not going to take insulin for the rest of the day. <laughs> Sometimes you really have to be like, all right. <laughs> my, my scientific <laughs> hypothesis is correct now like I, yeah. I failed I horribly failed yeah. um, but it does it, yeah. it's again it's human nature you don't want to believe it it's that what is a series of you go through grief and then oh my uh, god <laughs> non-understanding and then like denial anger. yeah denial. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah something like it's like name. yeah 
it's the same exact thing. It's when you go through like really high stress or grief, uh, the series of grieving or something. But yeah, no, I think like just having chronic disease, individuals that have them have so much resilience because it is like you wake up every day and you have to say, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep going, even if I don't want to, even if I absolutely hate this. Yeah. So yeah. Here's another good metaphor. If you're, if you have vision issues, right? Maybe you're not 2020. Every morning, you either got to wake up and put on your glasses or you got to put in your contacts. Now, some days I'm like, I don't want to do either. <laughs> and I walk out the door and I hit something. <laughs> and I say, okay, Jonathan, you are blind. <laughs> need your glasses. You need your contacts. Yeah. It's not a, a downfall. It's something you have to take a little more time to do, but <laughs> you'll be okay. Yeah. That's, but, that's a good analogy. I think I have one last question. Um, it's Me too. so like, it's like a two part question, but um, what advice do you have for patients that have been newly diagnosed with diabetes type one and also the healthcare team, namely like PAs and doctors on how they can help their patients given the little time that they have with each patient? I like it. So I'm going to start <laughs> doctors, doctors, PAs, medical system. I know it's hard sometimes. We try to give ourselves space from our patients and not get 100% connected because if you are, it gets very emotional and it's real hard to deal with. You get That's how you get burnout. That's how you get um, a lot of issues in medicine. But again, patients are patients and they're not just a number. You're telling somebody that their whole life is changing. They're a chronic issue. They're going to have to deal with this on a day-to-day basis. They have to be talked to um, like they're people and um, empathetically and try to be there to answer their questions. That's the number one thing you can do. And you can tell them, you know, like, uh, it's, it's going to be okay. We're going to get you through this. We have diabetes education. We have, we have multiple appointment options that we can go through the different details, tell you about the different medications. Just try to create the time. And that's honestly a lot of what just the medical side has to do is be there, especially for type ones, because type one diabetics are known after they get themselves on a, on a good routine and know who they're dealing with their doctor and such. A lot of times they're the ones that drive the car. They're the ones that are doing everything. Um, even when I, my diabetes educators, they're like, we just offer the tools. Once we teach you how to do the tools, it's all you like, and that's how it is. Type ones kind of know what they're doing after a few years. And if they have questions, they will search out and they'll find those answers from you or from other medical providers, right? But as a patient who's gone through it, it's okay to be surprised. It's okay to be in denial. It's okay to go through all those steps into understanding. Not everyone is going to take it so easily, but if you are diligent and hopefully have loved ones around you, and if not, hopefully the medical providers can help with that too. You know, there's a lot of uh, diabetes groups that meet that come together and you can talk different things out and you can just share different instances, share your stories, what you did, all this stuff, provide 
the medical system should help provide those connections as well if they're missing. But um, as a patient, it's not the end of the world. Uh, we're getting better in what, how we're treating um, the medications that we're using and the longevity of things. And as a patient, you should understand, yes, your life's going to change, but you're strong enough to do it. Again, trial and error are okay. Practice makes perfect. All those fun metaphors that, <laughs> that tell you to keep on going, they're true because it's not going to be completely easy, 100%. As long as you're trying, you're doing the best you can and life goes on. Wow. I'm inspired. <laughs> I feel yeah. like... I, I just, again, I see myself and I say, hey, what did I want at that point in time? I just wanted to be told that it was okay and everything was going to be good and that nothing's really going to change that much, even though I had a lot of changes for my medicine and stuff, but my life, my life didn't change that much. I still was able to do everything I wanted. I still travel. I still play all the sports I want. <laughs> I still even eat the the cake and ice cream, <laughs> but you just have to be a little more cognizant and mindful of why you're doing it or how to prepare to do it correctly. But one of my rotations, I actually wrote a, a blog on extreme adventure seekers and diabetes because it's a, it's a mountain like climbing blog. So they, they talked about like Everest and high altitude climbing and how it affects blood sugars. There's people that have climbed Everest with yeah. type 1 diabetes. Like Whoa. It, you have to be better than just a general person, you know, makes you better. Yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. They climbed they climb Everest. Wow. Yeah, I forgot the oh exact. Gosh. It was an awesome uh, AAPA journal or something that I did my um, blog on. But I just did like how how. Um, different hikers prepared for it or um, what the kind of general um, blood sugar happenings were when they were hiking or um, when they were sleeping or what their insulin needs changed or like all those different little details. What's That's the so freezing point of insulin? Because like, what if you get up there and then it's like question. really cold and then guess you yeah, can warm it up? <laughs> You probably have to have it in some kind of, because even when I travel, I'm, I'm supposed to have it in kind of like a little lunchbox container to keep it cooled. Because once it's out in room temperature, it starts its kind of a um, expiration process. If it's mm -hmm. in the refrigerator, it stays for a lot longer. But I don't know what the freezing point is. <laughs> that would be interesting. Yeah, I want. I'll just put it in the freezer for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, and the freezing point is yeah. like, uh, that was uh, $300 wasted. I'm sorry. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Hypothesis tested. <laughs> oh, and that's another thing for patients is uh, the hardest part is just financial. Like, how am I going to yeah. afford this? Especially, um, I mean, even with type two, because how many medications they have to take sometimes, but insulin is very expensive for no reason. And they're still trying to fight it, but yeah, it is at this point in time. But that was one of the Life. things that came into my mind when I was first diagnosed was like, uh-oh, another expense that I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. I can imagine. But, like, I, I saw this video of people asking other individuals in, I guess, different countries what oh, they yeah, thought the price of insulin it. was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the, the, they were just, like, astonished. Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah. why, why is it priced so high? If it's a basic need. Like, what it... Is yeah. it just greed? Yeah. 
It's just financial profit. But mm-hmm. I mean, there was one thing. I don't know how true it is. I haven't actually looked it up or anything, but I heard that the scientists that actually made it and patented or he chose not to patent it so they could make it cheaper or he patented it so they could make it cheaper, something like that. Mm-hmm. His goal was to make it very easily received or given to individuals for cheap because yeah. why should you be charged $300 for something that you didn't choose? Like yeah. I genetically did not make myself diabetic. I blame my yeah. parents, um, <laughs> but yeah, same with, I mean, it's just all those. That's insane. I, went, I wonder where it went wrong. Like he had this yeah. whole goal of making it more accessible. And then it's like, he's probably yeah. looking back and like, oh my God, these like, people. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing with like um, women's products in other countries. They just allow them to be free. Yeah. Like, why do we <laughs> profit off of something that has to happen that like, that's silly. You know? Yeah. Um, it's really messed up. Like it really is. And it's expensive and to, too. Yeah. yeah. And you have to pay for there. birth control. Like, it's wild yeah. that like we well, have such little like safe sex education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's true. That's another topic. <laughs> yeah, that's another topic for another day. <laughs> we split the podcast in yeah. half. It's Let's diabetes. talk about safe sex. Let's talk diet. about yeah. this. <laughs> Okay, okay. Uh, thank you so much for being vulnerable with us and giving us your time, Jonathan. To everyone that's listening, please do like and follow and subscribe to our podcast. We are now on Spotify, but also on Apple Podcasts. So find us on there. And as always, we love to hear from our audience. So if you or someone you know want to share their story about their chronic disease or even just want to discuss an important topic in healthcare, please let us know because we love to see healthcare through your eyes.